Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Lichter Festival. In this episode, broadcaster, writer and journalist Stuart McConey will take you on a journey through our towns and their rich array of characters, exploring some of the familiar and not-so-familiar corners of our national psyche. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode delves into Stuart McConey's new book, The Full English, a love letter to England that deftly weaves. Thank you very much, and thank you for turning out on this balmy Bradford afternoon. Yeah, so thank you. So, Stuart, um, again, because you know I'm not a Priestleyite, I have Well, you don't have to be, and neither does anybody in the room, because my book is influenced and inspired by J.B. Priestley, but it's very much its own thing. So, yeah. Okay, well, we're going to talk most of the hour about, about that, and okay. for the last ten minutes I'll, I'll ask the uh, uh, questions from the audience. But I'd like to start first, since we're at a literature festival, Stuart, is to hear your... Your personal journey, what made you become a writer and, and your journey to be, being a published uh, and successful writer? Well, that's a good question. I, classic thing, always liked reading, always been reasonably good at English in school. Um, never thought that, you know, would always be that kid who said, oh, I want to be a journalist, you know, when asked by careers people what to do. And, and they would just say, you've no chance. And, um, and I did realise as I grew a little older, that many, many of the journalists on British broadsheet newspapers seem to share the same surnames, which led me to believe that people from council estates in Wigan don't go into those newspapers. Um, fortunately, there was one, there was, then there was still one brilliant route of access into the citadel of writing, and that was our weekly music press. Mm-hmm. So even though, you know, the Guardian, the Times, etc., etc., would never have um, employed me, the New Musical Express did, quite happily. So I... From being a mill worker around uh, Lancashire, which I graduated, couldn't get a job, worked in a cotton mill, then worked as a teacher in Skelmersdale, and then got... Uh, did someone cheer then when I said South yes, Skelmersdale? Yes, I think so. Fantastic. Um, and then um, got a job at the New Musical Express. It was like, you know, sent an unsolicited review in, they gave me a job, and then fell into all the other things after that, you know, into writing for posh papers and radio stuff and all that and then that's and then and it's been a crazy roller coaster journey that leads to this moment (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about uh, the full english Uh, obviously as i think everybody here knows it's your latest book and it's based very much on the journey that jb Priestley took in 1933 tell us how you were introduced to the full english and to Priestley's writing well i think A mutual friend, no longer with us, I think, Barry Cryer. Oh, a lovely man. A a tremendous man. I had been on um, an edition of I'm Sorry I Hadn't a Clue in what I think of as the classic lineup days. I don't know if people who are into Clue, as we call it. The classic lineup, as the bands have a classic lineup, Clue's classic lineup was Garden, Cryer, Hardy, Brooke Taylor, sort of mid 90s, I think. Um, And we went out for a curry afterwards in Birmingham. To, um, to a posh Indian restaurant in Birmingham. And Barry and Graham were talking and got, were t- chatting about J.B. Priestley. And I just happened to say, oh, I know the name, obviously, but I don't really know much about him or his writing. And they looked at me with a, a mixture of, of pity and contempt. 
and said, you don't know Priestley? And I said, no, not really. I mean, I know my dad had some of his books and stuff like that. And I said, where do I begin? And they gave me this quick, over the poppadoms, they gave me this sort of, you know, Barry said, you must start with the good companions, this great big armchair of a book, as he called it. Then read English Journey. And of course, then I realized I did know an inspector calls, obviously. Mm. But to digress a little, Steve, mm. so that's what started me on my journey through Priestley. And I realized I loved him, and I realized we had a lot um, in common, I think, as men and as writers and politically and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then I, then I started to realize, more latterly, he's the kind of figure that I think, has, to our detriment, sort of disappeared from English public life and English public culture. The genuinely accessible and engaged man or woman of letters. So, uh, uh, the genuinely accessible and well-regarded public intellectual who would appear on TV programs talking about all manner of things, politics, time travel, dreams, whatever, who would you know, have, who could write columns in newspapers, who wrote books, who wrote short stories, who wrote plays, and who in the first section of the Second World War, through the first, and there's an event later on tonight, today, reflecting this, I think, the Postscript series that he did for BBC Radio. Every Sunday night, the nation would stop, rather like they do for my Sunday night programme, The Freaks Are Now, on BBC <laughs> Six Music. Every Sunday night, the nation would stop and gather around the wireless to listen to what Priestley had to say about how the war was going. And these broadcasts, a remarkable bits of writing, remarkable bits of delivery. He, he actually thought they made him more famous than he deserved. He thought they were getting in the way of his books and proper writing. He thought these were bits of squibs, really. But they are amazing because they spoke candidly but patriotically to the British people in their darkest hour, you know, and said, well, some of the things, some of the resonances in them, he, he, there's one bit where he talks about why we have to win the Second World War, and he says, because if we lose and the Nazis come to power, you will find that the laziest loudmouth in the workshop has been given leave to kick you up and down the street. Now, why does that feel so relevant right now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what he meant, of course, was entirely the worst kind of person would come creeping out from under stones, you know, and we've seen that. Yeah. And, um, and so he spoke like that, but of course, it, it, there was a leftist, centre-leftist message that everything he did, although Orwell thought he was a communist. He wasn't. But Orwell suspected him of being far too left-wing and put him when Orwell wrote his lickspittle list of people to keep an eye on for the government, he put Priestley yes, on that yeah. list, which I think has a lot to do with the snobbery Priestley encountered. Priestley encountered snobbery all the way through his life because he's a working-class lad from Bradford, a grammar school boy from Bradford who hated Oxford and Cambridge, hated his time there, and couldn't wait to get out and become a hack on newspapers. Um, and so the literary establishment never really accepted him. Ordinary people, and I make that expansive gesture with my hand because we are ordinary people and I love being an ordinary person. Um, they loved him. They absolutely loved him. But the intelligentsia always suspected him. Virginia Woolf called him the tradesman of letters yeah. um, or tradesman of literature. So there was, you know, there was this snobbery against him all the time because he was so popular, because he sold a lot more books than Virginia Woolf did. Mm. Um, at one point, 70,000 copies a day of Good Companions. Lorries, bespoke lorries, just taking the Good Companions out to bookshops. So this is a long-winded way of saying, but I think he's kind of disappeared from English public life. Oh, the postscripts, by the way, were cancelled at the end of 1941 on the direct orders of Churchill, who thought they were too left-wing. A government putting pressure on the BBC to yeah. do their bidding. It would never, it would never happen, happen now, ladies and gentlemen. Never happen. But he's kind of gone from English public life as a figure to be replaced by culture warriors, I think, which is a sad thing. Instead of someone to be replaced by people who on the right and the left 
have a vested interest in keeping a phony culture war going because it pays their wages. And I mean that, the right and the left. It's, you know, the people I see clickbaiting up, whether it's Farage and people out on one side, or Ash Sarkar and Owen Jones on the other, they're still mm. in the business. They're, re- they're, re- they're in the business of promoting themselves. And, that, and so they, they have a vested interest in keeping that clickbait, phony culture war alive. And we must resist that, I think. We must resist that. And Priestley would have hated it. Priestley would have been on Twitter because he wouldn't have been able to resist it. He wouldn't have been on TikTok, I don't think. But he'd have definitely been on Twitter. Um, but, but, he, but the people who still do know him, and I will finish this answer in a minute, Steve, the people who do still know him and love him year in, year out, apart from the members of the JB Priestley Society who are here, are teenagers. Because every year they do an inspector calls at GCSE and they go, this is brilliant. And it taps into a very teenage desire for social justice. I mean, I don't say that in a patronising way. You know, perhaps it's wrong that we sometimes lose that passion for social justice. But teenagers get it. Teenagers get what it's about. It's the absolute antithesis of there is no such thing as society. It's the opposite of that. It says we are all interconnected and we must love one another or die, as Auden said. And as Inspector Gould says in that incredible moment in the play, you need to learn this lesson to the Berlin family or you will be taught it in blood and flames and anguish. And it's, you know, powerful stuff. So, yeah, so then a new publisher came along, new publisher based in the north of England, Harper North, who said, do you, want to, do you know English Journey? And I said, I do. And from time to time, people have suggested that I retrace it, but I've never thought it's been particularly pressing to do so until a couple of years ago with the ruptures that we'd had for various reasons, Brexit, COVID, various general elections. Um, I thought, now maybe the time is right to take that snapshot of the country again. So I go to all the same places he did, pretty much in the same order. And yeah, my version's called the, the full... In- I, I would quite happy to call it English Journey Part 2 or yeah. something like that, or Return Journey. But my publishers wanted something more quirky, so it's called The Full English. So it, yeah. it very much came about because of the timing. I mean, Priestley's English Journey was 1933. I think he does the travel in 33, the autumn of 33, and the book comes out in 34. So Hitler had just come to power, mm-hmm. European fascism and so on. So yeah. it's no coincidence then that, that no. it, it came to your publishers and yourself at the rise of Trumpism and Modi and... Well, yeah, I said, this, I said this about the Jarrow book as well. A few yeah. years ago, I retraced the Jarrow March, and the same kind of applies another third, another bit of 30s iconography. Mm-hmm. And I said I just felt that, yeah, there were all kinds of reasons for that. There was, um, you know, a kind of populist, populism on the rise in Europe and, you know, and um, economic turmoil, a, a, a divided country and things like that. So I do think, though... So. But, it, I mean... Maybe at all. Maybe that would apply to Britain at any time. I don't know. But uh, uh, but yes, it felt like the right time to do mm. it. And emerging from it, it's very much the early part of the book, sort of Southampton, Bristol, very much felt like a country coming out of war. Yeah. You know, it did feel like a country coming out of something like the Blitz, boarded up shops, empty town centres. But uh, you know, as the book progresses, things get better. But. Um, yeah, so I thought there were similarities. I mean, you know, there'll always be a good time to do it. It's just a, his is a great book. And he, I think it's a very important book. Even if people haven't read it, its influence was far-reaching, I think, because I think his, his postscripts and English Journey and the Jarrow March were part of a sea change in British attitudes in the late 1930s. So when we did go to war, we also went to war knowing that when we won the war, we couldn't go back to what we'd had before in the 1930s. We couldn't let that happen again. And that mood, I think, seeped through 
politics and you know the 1945 Attlee government, the most progressive government this country's ever seen. Um, and Priestley, if you got him on the you know in the Garrick Club late at night over a few good whiskies, he would say. I had a lot to do with that. Yeah. My books and my postscripts had a lot to do with the welfare state coming in. So he was under no, he was under no illusions about his own power and influence and talent. I mean, it's not like people from Bradford to be like that. You're shrinking violets, aren't you? <laughs> you don't like to say anything like that. But no, Priestley was very convinced, of, and quite rightly, of his own talent and brilliance and power. Yeah. And Beryl Bainbridge did a version of it, didn't she? Yes. In the height of Mondeo man Thatcherism. But it's and, a very weird. Yeah. I haven't read it, but clearly. Well, you'd read it in. 20 minutes yeah. it's that about that thick yeah. um it's a very odd th that was another thing that was initially for me a worry i when i said hasn't every hasn't loads of people done english journey mm. it, wouldn't it be the kind it's like wigan pier doesn't someone do it every couple of years and my publisher said no there's one thing that beryl bainbridge did you can't really get it on dvd it was a series for the bbc you can't really get it you can get a few desultory chunks of it on youtube and the book itself is a thin thing like this where she doesn't go to any of the places oh, the priestly went know. to so to call it even a retreading of English journey isn't really right. And it's a very odd, dare I say, snobbish, cold and chilly book, which isn't the kind of book I want to write. I, I'm not interested in writing sneering books about and punching down and going to people's cities and bad-mouthing them. Where I can, I always try and find something good to say. And where things are sad and melancholic, as they were in a few places I went in, the Potteries in Boston, I want to say that not with any great glee, but I want to say this is, this is sad, what's happened to our times. But hers is much more mm. sneering. Priestley, though, Priestley's original, there's some shocking moments in it when you're brought up short by, you know, his attitude to Irish people in Liverpool and his weird thing about the Geordie accent, which he hates. <laughs> no, it's so odd because the Geordie accent is routinely voted the most beloved accent mm. in Britain, you know. And he absolutely hated it. And you wonder, it's a strange thing, so there's, there's no moments like that. In, but, but, but by and large, Priestley's is a very warm-hearted book about the English and English people, and written from a point of view when he does criticise places. I always think written from a point of view wanting to do something about right. it. I ran for, I went for a book of mine called Pies and Prejudice. I went to Accrington and said it looked in bad shape to me when I went. And the people of that, not the people of Accrington, the, the civic burghers of Accrington got very annoyed about this. And basically, there was a TV, Granada Report, my local TV thing in Northwest Tonight. Were, they took copies of my book out to people in Accrington and said, what do you think? And they, that, you know, the, the aldermen were like, well, he's, he's bad all he does is badmouth our town. And I was reminded of when George Orwell wrote about my hometown, Wigan. And when they decided to name a pub after Orwell in the 80s, loads of people came out saying, he did nothing but run our town down. <laughs> Why are we naming a pub after him? He did nothing but run our town down. And you want to bang your head on the table and say, he wasn't writing a mini-break leisure guide to Wigan. <laughs> he was writing a book saying something should be done about this. We should help these people. Something should be done. He wasn't doing come to Wigan. It's got a costa, you know. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and similarly, I, 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 wherever I go and wherever Priestley goes, I think where he does find squalor is a bad word. I shouldn't use that word. Where he does find deprivation or unhappiness, I think the point of it is what can we do? Can, Not, I, can yeah. I just pick up on that, Stuart? Yeah. The, he called, uh, from, from your book, because I haven't read it, he called it Rusty Lane, mm. didn't he? And another hero of mine, uh, Stuart's a big hero of mine, John Cooper Clark called it Beasley Street in yes. 1977. And what you found in, in your journey of areas like that, do you think, what do you think about how, how it's got better or worse? In, in, it's 90 years now, isn't well, it? Well, I mean, the thing is, what Priestley would be astonished about, I think, if he came to Britain today, he would be astonished about the collapse in the quality of the people who run the country. 
That would be the first astonishing. Mm. Not a party political point, I don't think. Well, it is a bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he would be astonished that we are still so deferential to a particular class yeah. and a particular kind of person who's purely by virtue of their birth and educational background yeah. seem to be ushered into positions of power in this country. He would be astonished that we haven't grown up. Because it, it it's been about immature. It is, when I go to Norway or Iceland, the places like that in my job, I just think, these people feel grown up in a way that we don't. We're still reading newspapers that tell us the most bare-faced lies and we suck it up and we, you know, and still, it's, and we still, there's a, if you could distill the whole book, I'm not, well, I shouldn't say this, it was going to say if you could distill my whole book down to one sentence, but don't, but don't do that, I read the whole book and buy it, you know. <laughs> but there's a moment in Coventry, at the Transport Museum in Coventry, which is a really exciting place to be. They're talking about having Coventry now, they're making hydrogen cars and driverless cars. The future of transport is being worked on by this diverse, young, new generation of scientists in Coventry, in the university. And there was reference though to the, the heyday of the motor, the motor car industry in the 50s and 60s, and a, a nice lady was there with her family. And I overheard her saying, oh, we used to be great in this country. Why, we could be great again, why can't we be great again? And I thought, no. Mm. Why this stuff about being great? Because it seems that a lot about being great to me was about going to other people's countries and bossing them around. How about being sane, competent, and happy? How about being efficient and fair and sane and competent and happy instead of all this bullshit about being great? Apologies to the young person there. But you know, <laughs> but instead of all this stuff about let's make us great again, what does that mean? Waving a little flag. And all, instead of all that rubbish, I'm a massive patriot. I'm a huge patriot, I, I'm, you know, unashamedly. But I'm like Priestley, I'm a progressive patriot. And I'm a patriot for the NHS, the Beatles, Shakespeare, the landscape of the Yorkshire Dales and the Lake District. I'm not patriotic for all that other garbage, you know, and, and that's why I think, and he'd be astonished that we still are, and we're still getting suckered by the laziest loudmouth in the workshop. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you think you've lost, in, going back to the hideous commercial world, do you think you've lost readership and, and sales because you're so outspoken? I mean, it's what attracted me years ago to, to your work, you know, because I don't, I'm, I don't I'm a think bit of a lefty. I yeah, I don't think so. Um, but the Daily Express aren't going to give your books a good review because of the opinions you express. Do you know what? Sorry do you about know, Do you know who, I guarantee you, gives, one of my, gives my books a good review every, t every time? The Daily Mail. Really? I think that might be because the brilliant Craig Brown always gets in the review pile first and he's a fan of mine and he reviews yeah. them first. But they do. It's an interesting thing. And I don't have a problem with that. I think it's like sometimes when people say about, the, you know, oh, the Tory press in this country, they never give us a fair ride. Well... Hello? Yeah, I know that. And police would have known that. So we've got to deal with it. You know what I mean? And I don't, that's why I would never say, apart from one publication, I'll talk to anyone. I'll talk to anyone. I'll have my books reviewed and printed anywhere, serialized anywhere, except one particular one that you can probably guess who lied about working class people who died at Hillsborough. So apart from that, um, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah. And, but I know what you mean. I don't think I have in a way because I think, and I think people know that, like all the people I love, like Priestley, like Clive James, um, have like a different, sh call it a shop or a farm or whatever. I, there's different bits to what I do. So there'll be people who listen to me this morning on Six Music with Mike. <laughs> no, it's gone. There'll be people who listen to me then who have never read a word of mine. Yeah. And, and, and I'm aware, and my bosses at the BBC are aware that I am kind of two, two different people there. I would never dream, I imagine that from the radio, you would never guess what my political beliefs are. 
But, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm sure you don't, because I try and keep that out of that. But yeah. my bosses are also aware that, but I've got another hat, you know, in which I can be a bit more yes. uh, opinionated, shall we say. But I don't, know if has, I don't know if it has lost me any sales, because I don't, I don't know, really. I, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know if the day, I think, I think they all... I think because I'm not what I, because I am quite patriotic and quite I think and quite fair and I don't think my books are kind of tub thumpy. They are meant to be funny. They're meant to be engaging. I mean, in this book, I do want to, to, towards the end to get serious. And there's a point towards the end of this book where I get very serious and very angry. But I, you've got to wait 300 pages for that. Mm. So, you know, you know, so. Can we talk a bit about the process of, mm. of, of writing? Because I was I was intrigued. You said earlier you follow the exact footsteps in yes. the order that Priestley did it. And to what extent do you pre-plan your visits? Obviously you've got to arrange a hotel and so on, but do you arrange to meet people in the towns and cities you visit ahead of time and get appointments at museums? And no, so not normally. Um, not normally. Some people do that and it doesn't... I, I'm not keen on that because you then I think get pulled up short by a chunk of the book that becomes an interview with a gentleman from the Chamber of Commerce. So I'd much rather eavesdrop. In the, I mean, that said, in the, I did do that for my last book about the welfare state, the nanny state made me. I did some interviews in that with people who were experts on transport, council housing, etc. In this, I occasionally made a couple of times where I, where I chatted to friends who knew something. For instance, um, Stephen, who runs the CBSO uh, in Birmingham, I wanted to talk him, to him about the cultural regeneration of Birmingham, that was, which is a brilliant example of how culture can regenerate a city, because modern Birmingham really was regenerated by Simon Rattle and the Symphony of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. And, that, and, and so that's, I wanted to talk to him about that. But largely, no, I bump into people. I like bumping into people. So you get wonderful moments where, um, in this one, I go to a place called Seam Harbour, I don't know if people know it's up in... And Priestley calls it the weird, something like the weirdest town in England because it's a pit village on the coast. It's a pit village on the coast, which is a really strange combination. And I was there one night in a curry house where I often find myself. Glass of wine, curry. And I realised that at the next table, two people, the two people talking were teachers, and I realised that they were talking about Inspector Collins. They were talking about the set text, and I had had to say, excuse me, <laughs> I'm here because of J.B. Priestley. Um, they didn't know about that, and, and, I, and I, so I got then a lovely chat with them about, I said, what do your kids think of them? And they said, they, they love it, they love Inspector Calls. I said, interestingly, the lads are more likely to take the side of, not take the side of the Burling family, but be understanding about them. Because, you, you know, the, the idea of the... I don't know if you know Inspector Calls. We find out that the Burling family, the Welton New Midlands family in it, have all in their own way, through their callousness or lack of concern or scoundrel nature, have all contributed to the death of this young woman. You know, they've all done her wrong in, a various, in various ways, and he's making... And Inspector Ghoul is coming to make them realise that. And they said that the girls always were like, yes, we get it, it's, you know. But the, some, some of the lads were more willing to say, well, the family were just being protective of themselves. They just had to stick together and protect themselves, which is interesting. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. But, but when you travel on your... So you travel on your own as well? I travel by and large on my own, yeah. In fact, in, always on my own. And I travel by public transport, by buses and trains. And um, Priestley well, did... Priestley did Priestley yeah. did a lot of his by chauffeur Daimler. Yeah. A lot of it because... Well, he'd just been made a very wealthy man by the Good Companions, uh, by the success of that book. So I don't blame him at all. I mean, if there had been times when I could have had a chauffeur, I would have taken it, you know, as well. Although I do think that being out there 
you know, he's, he's probably better but, than but, when but you yes, but he did, but he did do some of it, but he mainly, on the, mainly in the back of a show from Daimler, yeah. But when you travel on your own, this is, perhaps it says more about my mind than, uh, mm. than your intention. I mean, in the, in the evening, if, oh, you're, yeah. if you're eating or drinking on your yeah. own and you see someone interesting, they might, th you know, I mean, particularly women, you know, they might think you were hitting on them or something um, like that. Wow, I've never been asked this question before. Um, <laughs> Well, as, um, as I say, no, I suspect it. No, but, but, I know, but, you know, but I don't, but by, by and large, don't, I don't, I don't sidle over to people in bars and go, hey, <laughs> bet you're wondering what I'm doing in town, <laughs> yeah. eh? Where, well, ever wouldn't... heard of J.B. Priestley? <laughs> I'm not him. Um, no, yeah. but I know what I've you mean. His, no, he's got his football shirt. No, I mean, I, but that's part of the fun of the books, I think, that sometimes I'm having, sometimes, like in Seam Harbour, I think, I go in a pub, and it's one of those pubs where I went in, and the whole pub, went silent as I walked in. Yeah. And I was left with that dilemma of, I can't turn, you know, we can't, we're northern. I can't turn on my heel and walk out. <laughs> so I've got a brazen this side and walk slowly across the bar, you know. <laughs> Give me two fingers of red eye and look around. <laughs> and, and, but, and I was thinking, well, this is crap. This is a crap night out. But then also you're thinking, this will be a good bit in the book, though. This will be a funny bit in the book. But when do you write it? What, when do you, you know, how do you write your diary if you're oh, out of well, an evening? I tend, what, tend to, I'll go out, thanks to these little things, that's made life a lot easier because it looks like you're on the phone when I'm going, this place <laughs> No, you know what I mean? So when you're going, never come back here again, the people are morons. Um, no, so you can do a lot of that, or I used to, you know, it, it's a lot easier now than when you used to have to, Yes. get out a pen and paper. So I do a lot of that, or talking to that, and then I'll go back to my hotel room and I'll write it up instantly yeah. in notes, and then at some point later on down the line, at my desk, as people say, <laughs> um, I'll then make it into the beautifully crafted prose that we know No, well, I was asking that question, <laughs> I was asking that question on behalf of Michael Palin, really, with yes. whom I work and travels in Europe. And he said, it was, it was full of admiration for, for, for the way you did it, because of an evening, He's with his crew and, and can, you know, and even before he does, he goes to write it up. Yes. Whereas you go out gathering material of an evening. Well, I do go out like, gathering material of an evening, but also I'm, I'm, I bet he'll, he'll obviously get recognised a lot more than me, I guess. But, but I get recognised a little bit, yeah. which used to be awkward. No, it's okay. I get recognised recognize a little bit. Um, Mark Lamar once said to me, because we were in a pub, we were in the Nelly Dean in Soho, and a guy came in and said to me, I don't want to interrupt, but Stuart, can I just say I'm a big fan? And I said, that's great. And he went, and Mark Lamar said to me, that's brilliant. He said, you're, he said, you're at the perfect level of fame that the people who, rec who recognise you like you. And he said, <laughs> he said everybody recognises me now because of the telly, and not all of them like me. And I said to him, Mark, you do go out of your way to cultivate a hateful image, you know, as well. <laughs> he said, people come to me in the pub and say, I think you're a, and want to punch me, you know. So, yeah, but that, sometimes that's quite useful, though. So I will, yeah. to, answer your, to answer your question, if someone comes up to me, if, you know, if the lady in the bar comes up to me and says, are you Stuart McCrane? I'll say, yeah, I'll say, do you live here? Tell me a bit yeah, about it. Yeah, you know, yeah. so, that's, so that affords an entree. But no, it's, a, a, yeah, the process is, yeah, sometimes, yeah, you know, I, it is, a, so I sometimes, you know, will think, why am I in this town on a freezing Tuesday evening yeah. in November? But then, you know, it's all grist to the middle. And also, I always say about my travel books, you know, some people write travel books where they go and, where they go and live with the Taliban for six months, mm. you know. I go and eat Staffordshire oatcakes in Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> it's not a massive hardship, you know. So, the, the, tell me, um, of the places that you don't visit regularly, you may have never been to, mm -hmm. you only, because Priestley did, and you had your template, 
Which were the sort of surprisingly good or surprisingly bad ones? You're among friends. I won't oh, tell no, you. I, I mean, you know, was there somewhere you've never been or you haven't been for 30 years and you thought, fabulous, or, oh, God, this has gone down now. Um, I, okay, as a general rule of thumb, I found that British cities were, were resurgent. I think the big gap in England, England, actually, because it's called English, Chad. It's <coughs> English, mine and his. The, the real, I think, dichotomy now in England in terms of, in terms of just the vibe about the place, if I can use that in exact expression, is between towns and cities. And I know this has exercised a lot of people like the brilliant Lisa Nandy, you know, in what she writes about. And so, I don't think it's as much north-south anymore as between cities and towns. Because, you know, you see, and I don't know how this applies to, applies to Bradford. I'm not an expert on Bradford. I do come here for the book, obviously, but... Um, but Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle, Leeds, oh, I shouldn't say that here, should I? Bradford. No, no. Um, you do get a feel of the resurgence. Coventry, Leicester, you get a feel, I thought, of diverse modern cities that were on the way forward, on the front foot. Towns, less so. When I went to certain of our towns, our older towns, our market towns, I did feel that sense that's been much discussed and talked about by both sides of late, over the last few years, the idea of the left behindness. Mm -hmm. Now, we're in a thorny topic here, I know, because some people think that people who felt like that were entirely erroneous in their belief, and that they should simply, they were, they were buying into some narrative that wasn't true, and were bigots and all that kind of thing. I don't take that point of view. I don't take the point of view that what they then went and voted for was right, but I tried to be a little more nuanced and understanding about why they did it. And I think a lot of that was about the difference between cities and towns. And so, people's, so I mean, you go to, you, again, it's such a thorny topic, but I noticed so many places that seemed to me uh, were ill-prepared for a sudden seismic change in the way British society was organized. Um, and left behind in terms of resources. Mm -hmm. So for instance, Boston in Lincolnshire suddenly gets an influx of 30,000 new people without any investment to get new schools, new transports, stuff like that. But it's just, it's all right, it's happening in Boston. If that happened in St. John's Ward, there'd have been a hell of a different tack on the whole thing. But it's very easy to say, no, it's just those racists up north. And I'm not buying into that. I'm not buying into that. And because it's, I'm not, well, I'm not going to hear some of the people I grew up with dismissed so blithely as ignorant racists. They're not, you should, you know, it, a little more understanding and a little less hatred would have been useful, I think, in that debate. Because, as I always think, when, you know, who knew that saying to people, you're an ignorant racist, wouldn't get them on your side? Mm. Who knew? Well, I knew. I could have told you that straight away. So, but I didn't think either side covered themselves in glory in that particular debate, you know what I mean? But, I mean, but having said that, um, so you go to somewhere like Leicester, where I think in Leicester, the diversity of Leicester is its massive strength, and maybe Bradford too, and less of an expert on Bradford. But I saw a modern city, a modern diversity moving forward in a brilliant way. Other places, some parts of the potteries, Boston didn't seem to be doing that as well. And I kept hearing this sad refrain of, this used to be a nice place. Yeah. Now, I know there's an element of, we don't want outsiders coming here in that. But I do think a, a, a grown-up debate about these things, and that's what I try and do in my book, is, is say, I'm not prepared to just simply demonise any faction, well I am, there's, there is a group of people I'm quite happy to demonise, yeah, but you know, we, you know who they are, um, but, but I'm not, but it's, I don't want to punch down, I think I said about Slow by John Betjeman, you know, lots of people love Slow, it's a great poem, I know it, I remember it, 
But it's very easy to write a poem like Slow, come friendly bombs and fall on slow. It isn't fit for humans now. It's very easy to write a poem like Slow if you're a public school boy who grew up in a grade two listed vicarage in the home counties. Not everyone has that opportunity. Also, never trust a grown man who's got a teddy bear. Um, so, so I don't want to go to places and do... There's been a lot of it. There's been a lot of hand-wringing literature in the last few years about the collapse of the Red Wall, etc., 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 decline of Britain. Well, I didn't want to write that kind of book. Mm. I wanted to write a book that ultimately, and the last chapter is angry, but ultimately hopeful, you know, ultimately and say, we can, we, you know, we can grow up. We could grow up. We could, you know... As soon as this meeting starts, ends, the revolution starts. See, that's why I'm, that's that my oratory terrible, though, wasn't it? Yeah. It does do a strange thing to you sitting in here, doesn't it? It's odd. I do it's feel very like, odd. I do feel I'm going into sort of, in the nicest sense of the word, Mussolini mode. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he came up earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, remind me of the timetable, or I'll tell our audience yeah. of the timetable, because you were clearly affected by COVID or the tail end of COVID. Did you have to stop and start with, with lockdowns and so um, on? I, I, start, I, I com got the commission to do the book, and then COVID sort of... No, it had already happened, so I was slow in setting off because of COVID. And if you look in the early chapters of it, say Southampton, the first place I go, feels like a different, I reread that chapter just the other day, and it feels astonishing now, like a different Britain, where you, you've got a Britain out of a sci-fi, you know, where you go into a pub and a man in a mask takes your temperature and sanitizes you, and people are sitting apart, and it does feel now like, wow, that was, it's funny how we've gone back to normal so quickly, isn't Very it? It's quickly. like, wow, did all that really happen? Yeah, it did really happen. And um, yeah, and we find out that, you know, while some of us were well, some of us were saying goodbye to loved ones on iPads and not being lent to hospital rooms. Some of us were having wine time Friday, exactly. you know what I mean? Exactly. And um, just don't, that this time next year, we all remember that. Mm. Um, but no, but it did feel like coming out of a wartime footing. But, the, but uh, you can see now that we're just having the inquiry now. That the, 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 the shock waves, I think, from that will, will rumble on for a few years yet. And, and as you were saying earlier, a generation of young people who had a bit of their youth stolen from them, really, because of it. You know, not by anybody's fault. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It wasn't anybody's fault. But just a, a real shame, you know what I mean? Um, so, yes, it, it, was, it did feel like a country coming out of wartime, to an extent. I'm getting happier and more normal as the book went on, yeah. yeah. But to, answer, to answer, go back to your original question, yeah. I didn't know Lincoln, I didn't know Norwich, I love both of those places, mm. really love Norwich. Norwich has a Norwich bad press. Great. Norwich gets a bad press because of the comic genius that is Alan Partridge. You know, for a while, ABBA got a bad press mm. because of Alan Partridge and Norwich, both of which are brilliant things. Um, but, I, you know, and I, but I get the impression that Norwich quite, likes, Norwich quite likes it the way it is, that no one really mm. goes unless they have to, you know mm. what I mean? I get the impression Norwich quite, li quite mm. likes that. But I loved it. Norwich, Lincoln, I loved. Um, no, I, 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 look, I, you know, I didn't have a bad, well, I had quite a bad time that night in CM Harbour in that pub. I was going to say I didn't have a bad time anywhere, but that felt a bit bleak, I must admit. Yeah. But even so, it's all grist in the mill, yeah. Yeah, good. And, and is there anything, that incident, that just stands out as the daftest thing when you were either in the book or when you were journeying, something that's like, this could never have happened? I mean, is there, is there well, that, that incident in commentary with the woman saying, why can't this country be great again, did, did stand out for yeah. me as a kind of what I wanted to say. I mean, I didn't do, but mm. I wanted to say to her, Madam, what exactly does that mean, you know? Mm. Um, 
But, you know, there was generally... Um, Any interesting eccentrics you came across? Oh, I met... Oh, in um, Stockton-on-Tees, um, I went into the supermarket in Stockton-on-Tees on a summer's evening, just as there was, like, some mayhem around the tills, and, and they were saying, oh, that'll be cider. He came in here again, and he was mucking up, and I thought, right, OK, that's an interesting nickname. And I went down to take a sort of evening passeggiata along the beautiful... Stockton, another example, right? Stockton-on-Tees. The Tees in Stockton, if people don't know it, is wonderful. The town council, up until recently, have done everything they can to hide the river from the, from the town. Yeah. They've built a kind of monstrosity of a shopping centre so that most of the time when you're in Stockton, you're not aware that this beautiful river is there. And so, but anyway, they're changing all that and everyone in Stockton's excited about it. So I walked down to the Tees and I see a man dressed in upsettingly short shorts... <laughs> Underpants, really, is what they were. Lying on a blanket by the side of the river. And as the odd dredger would go past, he would get up and salute, take a swig of his beer or cider. And they would go, ah, and sort of... And I thought, this is obviously the evening ritual. And I thought, that's cider, isn't it? <laughs> he pops down to the supermarket, he gets a few cans in, and then he sort of, like the examining of the fleet at yeah. Spithead, you know? <laughs> Fleets all lit up with furry lights. That's a very old reference, though. About one person in the audience will get Connoisseurs of great radio will get that. And the furry lights, the fleets all lit up. Oh, Colonel Tommy Woodruff, that's one of my favourite bits of radio. Colonel Tommy, get it, go back to your houses and prepare for power. No, go back to your houses <laughs> and get the bit on YouTube where Lieutenant Colonel Tommy Woodruff reviews the fleet at Spithead in the 1930s and has had a few drinks with his old regiment beforehand. And so the fleets all lit up. With fairy lights, fairy lights, and then they switch the lights off, and he goes, oh, no, it's gone. Where's it gone? Where's it gone? And you can hear him rustling his papers. Lord Reith sacked him the week after, sacked him for his drunken performance, and such was the outcry from the British people, which I loved. They said, we loved it, we absolutely loved it, that he had to give him his job back. Tommy Woodruff, the review of the fleet at Spithead, you won't regret it. Very good, very good. And uh, what are you working on now, Stuart? What's the next Okay. Book? Um, I've, got an, I've got an idea for a quirky fiction thing, but before that... Because everyone assumes if you write books that you're inevitably going to write fiction at some point. And up till now, I've thought, well, I've not got anything to write, I've got nothing to say. No, no story, you know, people go, oh, everyone's got a story inside them. Nothing. Um, <laughs> and so, and it, it, so I've never, but I have got a quirky idea that I might do, but I'll say, this, I'll say the same semi-joke that occurred to me the other night in Chester. When I tell you that the research for the next book might involve some trips to Liverpool and Hamburg, you may have guessed that I'm going to work uh, on yeah. a book about the RAF and Luftwaffe's <laughs> destruction <laughs> of the harbour towns of England and Germany. And so, well, well, no, I'm thinking of something beatly mm. because it's a long time since I wrote anything about music, and it wouldn't be a music book because I'm, I, I don't want to write a nerdy music book. So it'd be a book that combines my love of the Beatles, with a kind of social history, politics, culture thing as well, by telling the story of their life between the late 1950s and 1970 via the other people in the Beatles story who aren't the Beatles and what they say about British culture, from Epstein to Yoko to Pete Best to... Stuart Sutcliffe. Stuart Sutcliffe. It wouldn't be exhaustive. Yeah. It's not going to be like one of Mark Lewison's, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. I shouldn't, I'm aware that I shouldn't say too much about this because I've not actually no, sent a proposal. Right. And got to do, I don't want to jinx it. All or give one of you sods the idea <laughs> either. But I just think it's about time I wrote something about that. And because, again, I think a lot of people felt this way. Post-lockdown, if you're a Beatles fan, get back 
just felt like it's a horrible time. Like we've been given, Peter Jackson gave us this great thing Wonderful. that made us feel good again and gave us our people back and gave us our band and so, so, that so that's probably what I'm going to write next. And you retold the story, didn't you, Jackson? Because mm. as a fan, I came out of the original film, you know, thinking that... Thinking it was miserable. And, yeah, yeah and, well, and, and, and that Yoko was splitting it all. And it yeah, was, no, he's, no yeah. he's a great man to have done that. He's yeah. given, us, like, given us our band back. And, and, but so that... But it won't be, it'll be a story about England and people and the world rather than the Beatles themselves. They won't be in it. They're not in it. That's my working title is with the Beatles. It's the other really? 200 people in the story. And some of them will get a couple of pages, I hope. But some of them, uh, like the guy who sold Ringo his first car for 75 quid and quite said to all the Beatles they were rubbish, might be, might be that bit, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it'll be a book you can hopefully read in order chronologically or you can put it in your loo and dip into it. Anyway, I shouldn't jinx it by saying it because... No, well, we, we'll move on now. The, the clock tells me that uh, it's time for questions. Is it that question. time? It, yeah, the, the, the chimes say it's two o'clock. So does anybody in this uh, chamber have a question for Stuart that I can put on, on your behalf? There's a lady there straight away. I wondered how much you thought of the places that you visited and of the regeneration and that kind of progressiveness of those places had been uh, arts and culture had been the catalyst for that progression. Oh, that's interesting. I think a lot, and I think that's probably, you, you know more about this than me, Steve. I'm, I'm sure that's been a driver in Bradford, has it? I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> certainly, I mean, certainly in Birmingham. That's the prime example. Certainly, the building of the CBS, the building of a, of a new world-class concert hall and luring Simon Rattle. So that absolutely, the regeneration of, of Birmingham is driven by that culturally. And now people come to Stephen and people like that and say, how can we culturally regenerate our city? Rotterdam, whatever, Warsaw. Um, Liverpool's another prime example. I mean, you know, 5,000 5, people in Liverpool owe their jobs to the Beatles. In terms of the um, towns, I'm a trustee of the Met in Bury. Oh, okay. And, you know, from a town's perspective, it's been a real struggle, actually, trying to regenerate a small town but using arts and culture as a catalyst because the money's just not there. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's what we find. The money goes to the cities. Yes, it exactly. It doesn't go to the towns. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's it. I mean, Manchester's the classic example of that, isn't it? You know, Manchester's sucking money out of... I don't know if it's the same place across Yorkshire or the West Riding. Manchester definitely sucking money out of Rochdale, Oldham, Wigan, mm -hmm. places like that, yeah. Uh, so it's great for Manchester. But Paul Morley says in his most recent book, his biography of Tony Wilson, which is great, he says Manchester is beginning to have the same relationship to the rest of the North as London, London has. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's becoming a kind of London of the North, which is not entirely a good thing. Um, uh, I come, uh, also, I was in Bury just last week, and, uh, and I actually thought Bury felt, on a Saturday afternoon, incredibly vibrant to me. I mean, compared to... Is it not? <laughs> Do you know what, though? I've got to say this, no, no apologies to anybody from Bolton, but it felt different from Bolton. And the people in Bury said to me, when, when they were growing up, Bolton, Bury was the poor relation to Bolton, and now it's shifted. Now it's interesting why that dynamic's happening, and I guess, you know. And people, I, I spent some time with Wayne Hemingway last week, who's involved in a lot of this cultural regeneration of times. And he said some interesting things. He said, when you go into talk about cultural regeneration of times, the first thing some of the civic people will say is, we've got too many charity shops. We've got too many charity shops. And he says, what's wrong with having charity shops? They're the ultimate, you know, you, the days of retail on every street are gone. Yeah. They've gone and they're never coming back. Charity shops are a brilliantly forward-looking thing, recycling, you know, and, I, and I, he changed my opinion. Because I'd been thinking, oh, charity shops, is a bit sad when you see so many. You're saying, flip your mindset, start to think of them as a great place for your town centre. Because those big retailers are never coming back. 
And I, I think everyone's realizing that, you know, that, you know, that they're gonna, we're going to have to do something else with them. Art spaces, whatever. But, well, I wish you well, because Berry Met's a lovely thing. And I liked Berry a great deal when I was there. You've got like a Thai restaurant in the bus station. That's great. But you lost your football club, didn't you? Uh, well, that's sad. You know, we nearly lost ours just last week as well, yeah. Okay, can you take the mic? Hello, sir. Hi, Stuart. Um, I was interested in your comments about patriotism because yes. you, seemingly you wouldn't be a person you'd identify with being patriotic. And I consider myself to be patriotic as well. But I could never stand up and sing the national anthem because I don't believe in God, don't believe in the monarchy, and it's a dirge of a tune. Well, you... you and I'm only, very with you on this. The only yeah. way I was able to express that was at Manchester City, my football club, following the French bombings, they said they would play the Marseillaise before the game. Yeah. So I thought, oh, here's an opportunity. So I uh, wrote down the words in French. Okay. 50,000 people there. And before the game, I stood up and sang the Marseillaise. Great. And it was fantastic, absolutely fantastic experience. Norman Tebbit would co probably consider I was a traitor, <laughs> but I was just basically expressing... My patriotism, yeah. English patriotism, in the only way they possibly could. I, I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you on that. I think it's a shame that our national anthem has to assume beliefs in things that you can be really patriotic and not believe in. I think that, you know, really patriotic and, and not believe in, which is why for many years people have said we should have Jerusalem as the national anthem, shouldn't we? You know what I mean? And there's a lot of, I, I have a lot of time for that. It's a much better tune. And much better words. They never get around to that third verse about frustrating... Well, you know, is it about, the foreign, about foreign people frustrating their knavish tricks, confound their politics? They almost think that, don't they? It's like the John of Gaunt speech. I love this. I, meant, I put it in and there wasn't enough room in the end. When people go to the John of Gaunt speech, the famous John of Gaunt speech, you know, this silver sea... What's, I can't remember it now. Silver, this jewel set in a... Oh, come on, we know it, guys. Set in a silver no. sea. You know, all that, that beautiful speech about, about England, about Britain. No one ever reads the next bit, which says, so how have we ended up doing this to it? How, and politicians of the left and the right trot that out as a bit of patriotism. And what he's saying is, that's what we could be like, and how have we done this to it? Go back and look at the end of the John O'Gorn speech. It's, a re it's saying, what a mess we've made of our country. So, we've got the oldest person in the Hello, audience. how With are a question. you? Um, so on the radio, yes. you, you seem to be a very lively person, but would you say that that's how you are, like, just at home? A very lively or likeable? <laughs> did you switch? Did Both. you switch? Okay. Oh. Um, oh, you should have seen him um, before. It yeah. <laughs> I came in here, I had a pair of shades on, yeah. I had minders, yeah. and I... No. Um, that's a good question. That is a really good question, because people are, I think, slightly... Different. I don't think I'm much different. You'd have to ask people who know me well. I don't think I'm much different on the radio to what I am like. Like I just said, I might be a bit more serious about some things, and I don't let that be on the radio when I'm talking about eating crisps, for instance. But I don't think, by and large, I think I'm quite similar. Um, Jonathan Ross said that when you... Jonathan Ross once said... He's a TV presenter. He, that you play, you're a slightly magnified version of yourself when you're on a camera or in front of a microphone. I think that's true. I think, and you sometimes pretend a bit because you know it'll be funny. So sometimes on the radio, I'll pretend to be like grumpier about something than I really am because it's funny. 
or something like that. But I am quite a grumpy person. No, no. <laughs> That's a really good question. Very that is a really good. good question. Thank you. Jonathan Ross is a TV presenter, and the Beatles were a pop group. Oh, yes, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> People know the. Can you pass people, it next People door? know who they are because you know what? I, my little grand, I've got a little grandson. I know. How can I have? But, um, uh, and he, the other day I played Hello Goodbye and he said, and he's singing along to it. I said, How do you know that? And he said, We play it in my class when everyone leaves or, or exits the class. We sing Hello Goodbye. And I just thought, That's fantastic. They're, wo like, you know, they're woven into the warp and weft of the country now, which is great. It's not, just, it's not just being a boring old music nerd. They're, like I say, I'm patriotic for them and Shakespeare and Monty Python and the NHS. Oh, you're just yeah, saying yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Now, make it a quick question because the opposition yeah, okay. benches need to ask yes. you a question. <laughs> okay. Uh, she, know, she knows all about the Beatles anyway. Good. Uh, um, uh, mine's, it's not so much a question. I'm going to try and make you a new friend. Um, so, do you know the, uh, or you know of the comedian Ellis James? I do, he's a Welsh comedian, he's married yes. to his Sutty, yes. Yeah, so um, he has a show on Five Live he does. on a Friday afternoon, and uh, in quite a few episodes he's talked about the full English recently, and he's, he's reading it. My book? It. Yeah. Oh, bless him. He absolutely loves it. Bless him, I he didn't wants, know that. He wants to meet you, and he wants you to like him, is what he said. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what, sir? When, we leave, when I leave here today, Later on, I'll, me I'll message him. I don't know him. I we've never met, but I, I, you know, in the crazy world of social media, I'll DM him and say, it's never going to happen. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm really, well, I didn't know that. And of course, I've now, whatever I thought about him previously, I now think he's a hell of a guy. So. No, I, I, I know he's, he's I know the, I only know he's a partner of, is he such you I know very unlike, yeah. Okay, we're just time for one final question. The mic's. We on should its say way. as well, if you haven't, if, if for some weird oversight you've not bought and read my book yet, I think I'm going to sign some afterwards, aren't yeah. I? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay, great. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Hello. Hello. So, as we've heard, you've got growing legions of fans across the country. Um, witty, oh. erudite, thoughtful. Are you aspiring to be an intellectual, um, public intellectual, and man of letters? Um. Wow, um, I would, well, you know what, go on, if you're asking, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, it would, be, it would be flattering. I do jokingly mention that at the end of the book, because Andrew Marr writes a column in the New Statesman, just as I was finishing the book off, and he said, we need someone like Priestley now, a popular writer who will talk about these things and blah, blah, and mention them on the radio and stuff like that, and I put, and I put as a joke, I put, well, you can consider all of the previous 300 pages an application for the job. But that's just, that was just because it was a joke that I couldn't resist. I mean, I'm, you know, he was an extraordinary, ex extraordinary uh, man. And, um, and I think it's interesting, you know, well, to come right full circle to where we are here. Um, I mean, he's got his statue. Did anybody listen to the programme I did on Radio 4? What about to J.B. Priestley? Well, we came here, obviously, to do interviews for it. And, uh, and so many people didn't know who he was when he statue there outside the museum. Um, and a lot of people vaguely knew who he was. But I think the, we need to get a better plaque up in uh, Manningham. Because well, there's two places. There's a lot of confusions about where he was born and where he grew up. Because he's born in one place, born in one street, and grew up in a couple streets long. But I think it needs, it needs smartening up the plaque. Mm. So we should, we should get on to that. And he's, you know, he's a, a giant of English literature, you know. And, um, and the sort of person we could do with now. So, I mean, I would never be as presumptuous as to put myself in his category, but I'd like, hey, as we used to say, as people, as my mate's dad used to say, I like his money. <laughs> <laughs>
Stuart, I think we've just about come to the end of the hour, and uh, you won't be let out of the chamber unless you've got a copy of Stuart's oh, book. Oh, no, you will. Signed you, or it's not. It's a Saturday, sunny Saturday afternoon. Go and do whatever it is you want. Yeah, yeah. But I would like you all to thank Stuart for being here and speaking so well. Oh.